Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Ashley Mack is a physical therapist and founder of ifixyoursciatica.com and Dragon Digital Health. In this episode, we talk about how he became a physical therapist, his entrepreneurial journey, and what he learned along the way, telemedicine and physical therapy, and how he uses artificial intelligence to help his patients. This is a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, Ashley, how are you doing this morning? I am doing great, Zane. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to good to see you again too, man. Uh, it's real early by you, right? Like you're in you're in the West Coast. It is early, five forty five a.m. But uh, I am a morning person. I usually wake up at around five fifteen, five thirty to go to the gym at six. So it's uh, just a normal everyday occurrence. I slept in till about seven a.m. yesterday, which was very unheard of. But uh, <laughs> apparently, I need a little bit more time to rest. Yeah, man, you gotta listen to your body sometimes. But um, yeah, man, I'm really excited for this discussion uh, for this episode in general. But before we start, uh, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Yeah. So my name is Ashley Mack. I am a physical therapist. I've actually been practicing physical therapy since 2012. Uh, one of the biggest things was I was always interested in trying to just do a better job at what I do. And I happened to be really interested in pursuing a lot of ventures on my own. So actually one year out of graduate school, after working in the clinic, I actually decided to open up my own cash-based clinic, which for listeners out there, if you're not familiar with what cash-based physical therapy is, it's pretty much out of network and patients are actually paying out of pocket. And so 10 years ago, patients have been paying out of pocket and being able to really just work off of that model, addressing uh, the really complex issues, but also working with clients one at a time. I know that a lot of clinicians are getting pretty frustrated and tired of having to spend maybe five, 10 minutes with the patients, but the model that I was able to follow at the beginning of my career was being able to work with patients one-on-one and has been successful. Um, from there, I actually opened up my own uh, clinic and health uh, fitness facility out in New Jersey. Uh, and I was able to help people get stronger and actually recover from their injuries, either post-surgical or from chronic pain. And then in 2019, my wife and I moved out here to California and I had to really restructure uh, the overall business model. And so now at this time, um, doing inpatient visits, uh, doing low back, sciatica, hip and knee replacements as well. Um, as in addition to that, I actually have created the iFixYourSciatica.com platform, which is a go-to platform for people to look at when they're experiencing sciatic and low back pain. There's so much information that's already out there. And I want to be able to create a unified platform to inform patients and, and even clinicians as well on understanding sciatica and how to treat it, which led me to starting my own podcast, which is the Fix Your Sciatica podcast. But then also what linked me up to Zane was this concept of using healthcare technology to be able to push healthcare and help patients even more. And so I'm really thankful for this opportunity to chat. 
Yeah, man, that's uh, that's an awesome journey. And uh, no, first of all, man, thank you for agreeing. Um, <clears throat> but so, sorry, <coughs> man. Um, so yeah, so you primarily focus on sciatica, correct? And so for those who don't know, what is sciatica? Yeah, so sciatica itself, if we look at the diagnosis code, the diagnosis itself is actually going to be pain that is along the distribution of the sciatic nerve. And so the sciatic nerve is actually the longest nerve in the body. It originates from the spinal roots L4, L5, S1, S2, and S3. So those are the spinal levels. And they exit and they form this really thick nerve called the sciatic nerve, which actually passes through your butt. Now, depending on what your anatomy is, it either passes straight through your piriformis or under your piriformis. And that's why when a lot of people have, say, back, buttock, leg or leg, uh, lower leg pain, they're often looking at the piriformis nerve. But in essence, it's irritation along the nerve that spans from your back that trends that travels all the way down to your leg. And it provides sensory to the hamstrings and the any area below your knee, but also provides motor control. Um, so being able to contract your muscles in your hamstrings, your calves, your shins and your foot. Um, a lot of people think uh, that butt pain, buttock pain is often caused to an irritation of the sciatic nerve, but it's actually caused by an irritation of the super, excuse me, superior gluteal nerves, uh, which are very, come from a very similar part of where the back is, but um, the sciatic nerve, uh, whether it be sciatic nerve or gluteal nerve irritation, oftentimes the causes of that pain are actually very, very similar. So being able to treat butt pain would be very, very similar to treating hamstring pain or back pain that would radiate down the leg. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. So, no, thank you for that. But let's kind of talk about your journey in general. Like, so you got out of school and you kind of jumped into creating your own business, right? So, A, what led you to that? And then kind of like, what were some lessons learned? Like, obviously, you know, not everyone, we all talk about, like, everyone sees like the glitz and glamour, like, oh man, he's doing great. But like, no one really sees like all the hard work that goes into it. So kind of like what made you open your own clinic up? It's a great question. And I love answering this question because I think it allows people to just understand what the risks are and everything like it is out there. And so I'll be a hundred percent honest. I am going to start off with, I didn't even know that I wanted to be a physical therapist. It was actually my senior year of high school. So my senior year of high school, I was a competitive swimmer. So my weekends were actually filled with swim meets. And so my sophomore and junior year, where the majority of high school students would actually go and visit colleges, I was at swim meets. And the times that I didn't have competitions, all I wanted to do was sleep. The last thing I wanted to do was to visit a college and to figure out what I wanted to do when I became older. All I wanted to do was eat, sleep, swim, and play video games. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school where everyone was starting to apply to colleges. And I realized a lot of my friends were saying, oh, I'm getting my X, Y, and Z applications in. And I started to panic a little bit. I had no idea what I was going to do. So I went to go to the uh, guidance counselor. And I go into the guidance counselor's office and she says, Ashley, what can I do for you? And I've never met this person ever. I have only thought that you would go to the guidance counselor because you had emotional problems, things that would affect you at home. And so I didn't realize that you go to the guidance counselor to figure out what you're going to do with your life. And so I go in and they, she said, what can I do for you? And I told her, 
all my friends are applying to college. I have no idea where I should be going. And she asked me, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I think one of the interesting things that all of us have learned is the fact that when you're in high school, you have no idea what you're going to do. And your career path is going to be very, very different. And so in retrospect, I should have given myself less pressure. But I said, all my friends are applying to college. I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. And from there, she asked about my interests. And I said, well, I really enjoy sports. I love athletics and I really enjoy science. A lot of my teammates would go get physical therapy when they're hurt and they would come back feeling fine. And my guidance counselor said, well, you make a great physical therapist. Again, I had no idea what this profession was. So my guidance counselor said, you'd be a great physical therapist. Here are five accelerated programs. So for the listeners out there, physical therapy is now a doctorate degree. It's a clinical doctorate where you would go four years undergrad, apply to grad school, and you do a three-year postgraduate set of studies. This accelerated program actually cut a whole year out. So instead of four and three, it ended up being the three and three. And I said, you know what? I'm totally happy with cutting out an extra year, uh, a year's tuition. Why would I have to spend that money if I don't have to? So I applied for these colleges and I applied for them, got in, interviewed, and then I visited uh, a couple. And the one that seemed to be the closest to home was Villanova. Uh, it was Villanova partnered up with Thomas Jefferson University. And I said, okay, let me go ahead and apply. And again, I still had no idea what the physical therapy profession was. I just literally just said, okay, this is the next step in my life. I didn't realize that what I was getting myself into until I was in grad school. So I remember going to grad school and everyone's saying, oh, why are you here? And everyone's explaining how they've always wanted to be a physical therapist or they volunteered at various different physical therapy clinics and health X, Y, and Z. And I walk in and I say, well, I'm a stupid college athlete. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just know that I have good grades and I, I guess that this is a profession I'm going to do. And then I started getting into the clinic and helping people. And that was really exciting. And it wasn't until my last clinical rotation where I was really, really challenged and understood the concept of using physical therapy as a way to treat pain, specifically back pain, sciatica, and even the concept of chronic pain where patients are experiencing pain for a long period of time. And then so I finally graduated from school, 2012, so it's 2023, so we'll say 11 years now. And I graduated and started a job and uh, started a job at a, a local small clinic by my house. And I remember at that time I said, okay, so I guess I'm going to do this job for the next 40 years and then retire. So I didn't even consider opening up my own clinic. I think I just arbitrarily said it in school one day, but here I was in the clinic working six months and I said, okay, I guess this is going to be the rest of my life. It wasn't very sad or depressing for me at the time. Now it is. Now I think I'm like, okay, that was pretty tough. But one of the big things that really drove me to leaving was that uh, I realized I'm not a very good employee. Not to say that I'm insubordinate, not to say that I think I can do it better than anyone else, but I have a specific rhythm on how I operate. And in many cases, doing that, working for someone else can be challenging. And I have the utmost respect for the clinic that I worked for, but I realized that in order for me to do the things that I wanted to do, whether it be to work with patients a little bit longer, or even one of the big things that I've noticed over the past couple of years <clears throat> is that in healthcare, 
the healthcare business model just in general is very different compared to every other industry because in physical therapy, patients are coming to you for a problem. When we fix that problem, it's technically bad for business because when we fix that problem, we no longer have a patient, which means that we need to focus on actually filling up that extended gap. It's pretty unethical for us to keep these patients for a long period of time. That's not what our job is. Our job is just able to help them specifically. So being able to combine that, being able to say, all right, here's the scenario with the healthcare industry. Here's what I, here's what it looks like from a physical therapy standpoint. How can I do things a little differently? And I'm not leaving the clinic to say I'm better than anyone else, but I wanted to be able to operate on my own. And that's where I was able to do it. So that was the excitement. That was the exciting part. That's what the, the big catalyst was for me to be able to step out on my own. It was very scary, but the big thing was me saying, well, if I go out on my own right now, I'm in my early 20s, what's the worst that could happen? My risk aversion was very, my risk tolerance was very high because if in the event that I tried to start my own clinic and it all fails, I can actually work for another clinic. There's always an opportunity for me to work for someone else. And that gave me the confidence to be able to say, let me try this out for now. And that was 11 years ago. And I haven't turned back or regretted ever since. Um, so, so that was, that was how, I was uh, how I got started. Um, Zane, I'm so sorry. I forgot the second part of the question. No, the second part was like, what were kind of the, you know, the trials and tribulations when you first started? Yeah. Oh, okay. So um, the trials and tribulations. I think the biggest challenge, number one, was being able to get yourself out there from a marketing standpoint. Uh, I was as talkative as I am right now and as willing as I am to have conversations with other people. I'm a relatively introverted person. And oftentimes after a week of seeing patients, all I want to do is sit on my couch and not talk to anyone because I love talking with people, but I do give a lot of my energy when I have these interactions with um, so being able to market, that is a very uncomfortable thing. And especially when you're so used to being behind the books and also even being in a clinic where the power dynamic is a little different, where patients are coming to you saying, I have this problem. Can you please fix it? When you step out into the world and introducing yourself to patients and trying to market your services, the power dynamic has changed. And so that in itself was really hard. So being able to just have conversations, be able to reach out and be able to do that uncomfortable aspect of introducing yourself to other people. The second part was just trying to do selling, trying to convince people to actually work with you because there's so many, at the time, there were a lot of clinicians out there and paying out of pocket for healthcare services was a very new thing. So how could I actually convince someone to pay out of pocket to be able to use a service that is actually covered by their insurance? Now, things have obviously changed over the past two, three years, but that was a hard, hard aspect. And so I think that those were two, the two biggest things. And then the third, the third aspect was the, the level of uncertainty. Um, some people thrive off of uncertainty. I would say I'm 50-50. I like the aspect of uncertainty because it allows me to say I have control and I can really change and have control of the outcomes. But there's always that inkling in your head where if this all goes wrong, like why, what am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? And ultimately I go back into why I do this in the first place was one, I wanted to help patients, but also number two, if all else fails, 
I can go ahead and work for a hospital or another clinic. And that allowed me to, to really grow. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, that's actually also a great mindset. I mean, I, one thing that you said, like you love you, I didn't say, you didn't say love, but you don't mind uncertainty because you have control. Um, that's kind of polar opposite of how everyone thinks. Do you mind kind of talking about that a little bit more? Like what, how does uncertainty lead to control for you? So, um, that's a great question. And one of the really interesting things is, uh, I've, I've started I, on and off. I've been reading, um, stoicism and stoicism, really the concept of stoicism is understanding that there are events in your life that are out of your control, that, but the best thing that you can have control over is how you react and how you view things. And so that was something that I found the part be particularly powerful is being able to say, all right, I can't always control the outcome of things, but I can absolutely control how I see and perceive and what to do after. So that was really helpful in itself. Um, but if you look at it, for the most part, if you're working for a stable clinic, the outcomes and trajectory of what you're going through is going to be pretty standard. You're going to be working for a clinic, you're going to be working for a hospital for a couple of years, you then get promoted to the next step. You work there for a couple more years and then you get promoted to the next step. It's very predictable. And not to say that people who prefer to have that stability, um, I, and, and I just want to be, it's not necessarily saying like entrepreneurship or going out on your own is way better than working for someone. Like in order for us to be able to have an impact, we need to have a team. And in essence, in order for you to form a team, you're going to have people working for you, right? So that knowing that at that point, there's a lot of certainty but also that certainty doesn't necessarily give you the opportunity to have much flexibility. It doesn't allow you to explore the various different options that are out there. And so you end up becoming more, you're, you're in a tunnel where you're going in one specific direction. Again, it's not a good or bad direction, but it's more of a tunnel and you're not having those opportunities to branch out, which for me, I get bored quite easily. And I think, I would much rather have things be uncertain and be working on something than be bored out of my mind because I've been bored out of my mind and it's a terrible feeling. And being able to have that dynamic aspect is really impactful. And when pe and I think it's also very dependent on how you look at challenges as well. There's going to be challenges along the way when you're working in a clinic and you're not an entrepreneur there are going to be challenges. You're going to be dealing with the higher level management. Um, I believe in entrepreneurship, especially as you go out on your own, when you're dealing with challenges, rather than saying, oh my gosh, this is a challenge. Why is this happening to me? Switching that question into more so, how can I rise above the, the, the scenario? And I think that I can attribute my 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 career in athletics and college swimming to be able to say, well, let me go ahead and face these challenges head on. Every race that I did was so painful and I could have chosen to either just coast or push through it and try to win my races. And I think that in itself allowed me to, to overcome that. And that's what allowed me to approach the uncertainty. And also my entire life, I've really been able to say, this sounds like fun. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but let's go ahead and see what happens. Yeah, no, that's an amazing mindset. I think that uh, I, I, 
I try to be like that. I mean, it's really difficult. I think for a lot of people, uh, me included, you know, but like knowing that you control the way you react to a situation is a really powerful thing. And I'm trying to put myself in that situation, my, my mindset when something bad happens, because, you know, you're like, oh, man, why me? Why is it always me? You know, you always like everything is crumbling around you when you when um, I was reading this one thing and they were like, um, a lot of times we plan everything out. And then we don't do anything, right? Because we're just like analysis paralysis. They said the majority of times, if you just start, you will figure it out. Like you as a person, whoever you are, regardless of your thing, you will figure it out. Because as different challenges come up, you will just figure out that challenge and then move on to the next one. Then the next one to the next one. When you're just like researching everything, you're trying to like figure out all the challenges all at once. Then it becomes really like, oh my God, I can't handle this. And then you just walk away, right? So... Uh, I've been trying to take that mentality a lot more because I used to be like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to plan everything. And now I'm kind of like, all right, guys, I'm just like telling myself, hey, just do it. See what happens. And then just enjoy the ride. Right. I mean, I think that's one thing, too, is like even when we do have challenges facing us, like if we we a lot of us just forget to look behind us and be like how far we've come. Right. And really like looking at the growth that we've how far we've grown and how far we've come. And I've been trying to do that a lot, too, is like looking at myself and be like, hey, Yes, it sucks right now, but remember when you've like first started or we're doing this thing and you had no idea what the hell you're doing? You know, like if if you told yourself like a year ago that you'd be here, you'd be ecstatic, right? So I think uh, the mindset is, I, mean, I don't like talking about mindset. I'm not a mindset coach or anything like that, but it does really affect the way you approach challenge, especially when you're doing entrepreneurship, because like you said, even when you're, even when you're like working with other people or you have like a team behind, you are by yourself, right? You're alone. Um, not everyone understands what you're going through because you are the one responsible for everyone else, right? It's kind of like a parent-child relationship. Not saying that they're your children, but in the sense that you, your decisions 100% affect the way they operate and do their business, right? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, a lot of it is, uh, not to say, yeah, you're right, mindset is one thing. I think it's also important to understand how you best operate. And it's, uh, I mean, you're you're really... You know, you started this podcast, you know, you probably started, you're like, who's going to listen to this? You're like, I want to start this, but be able to spread the word. Um, it's really amazing. Um, and yeah, you've come, it's, it's really cool to see, you know, what you built and uh, yeah, it's really exciting. But one thing I wanted to share um, for, for you listeners out there, if you're, if you're one of the tools that I came across early on in my career, I thought was amazing was called the, the Colby index, which is spelled K-O-L-B-E. And what it actually does, it it's considered somewhat similar to like the Myers-Briggs, which is like your personality type, um, like introvert, extrovert and stuff like that. But what the Colby Index actually does, it actually looks at your, uh, how you operate. It's called your cognitive um, aspect. So it's not intellectual, it's not personality, it's actually how you operate. So there are some people who actually really thrive off of researching all the facts before they do something. Some people like to fire at the hip first and then um, and aim. And what this actually does, it allows you to say, all right, these are my strengths. This is how I best get things done. And as I was going through this and um, a few years into being, being my own boss, I realized that what I have a tendency to do or my, the best that I operate is not, it's not necessarily create something completely new but taking something that's already working, systematize it, and then making it more efficient. And so for me, knowing that, it doesn't make sense for me to try to reinvent the wheel 
it actually allows me to say, all right, let me take the wheel that's already working. Let me make it look at shinier, brighter. Let me make it work more efficiently. And that, from that point, understanding that allowed me to get a lot work, a lot more work done versus me just sitting there in front of the computer being like, what the heck am I doing right now? It's uh, it was, it was really great. So sorry. I had to, I had to plug that in because especially when it comes to like over planning, researching, or just going, um, everyone has their own qualities and it's important for us to be able to, to really figure out what those are. And then we can capitalize on that. No, 100%. I think it, it's funny how like, you know, kind of going to your point in high school, uh, we're told to like decide our, the rest of our life, uh, when we're like 16, 17, uh, when none of us are prepared to do any of that. Like if you think of yourself when you were an 18 year old, like you probably cringe just thinking about the stuff that you're thinking or doing. But it's kind of like, you know, I, I mean, it took me a long time to just even know myself. Like, I would say I'm still learning things about myself where I'm like, oh, man, I didn't really realize that I those things tick me or like this is what pushes me or this thing. Like, it's just um, it's just one of those like things like I think we we put so much pressure on kids, especially nowadays, like putting them in tracks, doing this, doing that, like just let people explore and just do things right. Sometimes some people take a little longer. Some people take a little shorter time. Everyone's got their own journey, own path let people just enjoy their path. And I think that's that. what I'm trying. That's what I'm kind of learning. Like, you know, just, I'm sure it's similar with your culture. Like, you know, South Asian, you know, I'm from Pakistan. Our culture is like, Hey, get, get to a high paying job as quickly as possible. Like when you said, Hey, I'm going to take the year, like, you know, like six years instead of those seven years. Like, that's like, we're trying to, we're trying to just cut as many years off our education, not education, but like we're trying to get from point A to point B as fast as possible, regardless of if it's the right, wrong, whatever. And then from there, you just kind of work and then die at that job, right? Like, that's just kind of the way we work. And it's it's not good or bad. It's not, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but um, it's just interesting that uh, you said that. And like, but I don't want to spend too much time on the entrepreneurship because you are doing a lot of other things. Um, so I do want to move on to, so you, <clears throat> you worked into like telemedicine, right? Like you were working with telemedicine, incorporating that into your physical therapy. So for a lot of people that don't know, like, you know, like, They'd be like, hey, physical therapy, like you, how are you going to tell, like, what am I doing? Am I doing it right? Like, if I'm in pain, not in pain, you know, like, how did you, I guess, how does telemedicine work inside of physical therapy? Let's start with that first. That's a great question. I think uh, telemedicine, like when you're working with uh, patients virtually, I think that there is a, is a huge place for it, but I think it's very dependent on the physical therapy setting. And so uh, one Telemedicine for physical therapy in the acute care setting, aka the hospital, say post hip and knee replacements, right when they're out of surgery before they get just charged to home. That is actually, I believe, um, where you need a physical therapist to be there to ensure that the patient is walking uh, safely and can actually get in and out of bed. So um, I think that there's a lot of benefits to telemedicine. You can actually access patients from across the world, but it's not going to substitute catching someone in the event that they fall. So that's that's number one. I think uh, in the acute care setting, um, that would be a challenging part. Even in the rehab, we'll say geriatrics, when post falls and balance, um, whenever you need someone, like to, to, from a safety standpoint, to make sure that someone isn't going to fall and hit their head or break a bone, that is where uh, physical, telemedicine wouldn't necessarily be beneficial. Um, on the other end, when we're looking at physical therapy, the physical therapy side, when it comes to treating uh, orthopedic issues, 
Um, and I'm just going to speak from an orthopedics standpoint, but orthopedic issues such as knee pain, back pain, shoulder pain, or neck pain. And it's a great question. It's like, how can someone actually evaluate whether or not the treatment is working or how can you um, even implement a physical therapy treatment? And I think it starts off with initially understanding what physical therapy is and understanding that a lot of people's impression of physical therapy is that you go in, you get a hot pack on your joints, on your area, and then you get a little massage and then you do exercise, which is true. It's a large part of what physical therapy is. But this is where I even found how I operated was whenever you're dealing with pain that isn't trauma related. So if you weren't hit by a car, if you didn't trip and break your leg, if your pain just comes on, the original way to treat pain was, okay, well, you have a back pain. Here are these 15 different exercises for back pain. And that is the old school way of thinking. But ultimately, whenever it comes to pain management, and as you know, in far, uh, as, as a pharmacist, we have to figure out what are the ultimate causes of pain. And that's where you're able to get a lot of information, get a lot of data to be able to say, okay, these are the sources of pain, and this is how we can implement it. So one, to objectively measure pain itself. Truth be told, pain is an experience, and it varies by person by person. And so what that means is in order for us to actively or to as accurately objectify the level of pain, we use the, the VAS, um, the, the visual analog system, which pretty much says on a scale of zero to 10, what's the intensity of your pain? And that is going to be unique to that specific person. And so when they're describing their pain and they're rating their pain, what we as clinicians should be doing is rating their pain across their other ratings. So it's not going to be my pain rating versus your pain rating. It's going to be your pain rating today versus your pain rating tomorrow. So that's going to be number one. We can actually be able to collect that virtually. We don't need to be there in person for that. The second part is, how can we know if we're doing an exercise correctly? Well, from there, the great thing about telemedicine is that you can, like, we, we have our, and this is a great thing. We have our technology. We have the opportunity to video chat. And so when I work with my clients, what I'll actually end up doing is, like, I'll have a webcam like this, and I'll pan it up, pan it down. I'll take a step back as well. Usually I work with patients, I'll say, we need a camera and an area the size of a yoga mat. So it's very, very similar to when someone goes into a virtual yoga class and you're watching the person in front of you. But the way that true pain management should be from a physical therapy standpoint is having that line of communication. And in some cases, it can be very, very distracting when you're in the clinic of 10 to 15 other people when we're working through a session and I'm saying, Zane, try this stretch out. How does it make you feel? And it could be very distracting having other people talk and having people exercise around you. And so it actually creates this, in a way, vacuum, which allows you to be able to say, this is what I'm feeling and this is how it can be changed. And ultimately, when I'm here looking at you in front of the computer screen, in a way, I actually have the opportunity to kind of place a, a virtual grid um, of how you're moving. So one, yes, it's can you do the exercise correctly? But number two is the level of communication that we have helps us determine the right exercises or stretches or techniques for you. And now obviously with telemedicine, I can't do some of my hands-on treatment that, that I could usually do in person, but hands-on treatment is a tool, exercise is a tool, communication is a tool. They're all various tools in the toolbox. And we know when to use that specific 
instrument or intervention based on the questions that we ask our patients. And I think that telemedicine actually allows us to get that a little bit more, be able to ask the right questions. And it allows us to get a little bit more of a, I wouldn't say concrete because pain is so dynamic, but it gets us a little bit more targeted and being able to say, okay, this is the intervention that I think would be the best for you. And you get to spend a little bit more time as well, especially because you're not having to spend money on a big, fancy, expensive uh, clinic space where you have to fill it up. Yeah, no, I mean, you just talked, kind of blew my mind a little bit there because I never even thought about this was the, the aspect of being in a room with so many other people that you don't know and just being distracted by them. And then also kind of like, there's a bit of embarrassment too. Like I think all of us in by nature, like uh, when we're in pain or going to the doctor or hospital, it's a very vulnerable moment for all of us. And um, I'm sure you can testify to this or anyone who's ever seen a patient testify to this, what they tell you when they're by themselves versus when other people in the room are completely different. So I never even thought about this as telemedicine as like a more intimate way of getting, not, not I shouldn't say the truth, but like, all of the necessary information out because it's just you and them, right? It's a very intimate moment. No one, no one is hearing this, hopefully, right? You're not, uh, and I never thought about that. And that, I think that's also another thing about telemedicine that, um, that I'm now uh, realizing that is actually pretty powerful. Oh, it's extremely powerful. And an example, um, back in, uh, we'll say a couple of years ago. So, um, I own a fitness studio, so a gym uh, and physical therapy clinic combined. And you're absolutely right. When you're in pain, you're in a vulnerable position. You're saying there's something wrong with me and I don't know how to fix it. And that in itself requires a ton, a ton of just self-awareness and understanding saying like, I can't do this. And it's a very vulnerable position. And I had this person come in and they've been in pain for a long period of time. And as I was working with this patient, there was a uh, couple of people lifting. And so there was music playing, people are lifting heavy weights. And here you have this person in pain is like looking at these weights saying, man, I can't lift that. And I never expected this patient to lift it, but you can see that they were actually trembling a little bit because they were nervous. They were afraid they were looking and already being distracted. And at that time, uh, the, the pain that we feel is also tied to our level of uh, arousal of our, of our energy excitement. And so here's this person who's already in a vulnerable spot, seeing these weights being lifted, they're trembling. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, and it was actually true that their pain levels were actually way higher in, in the clinic slash gym because there was so much stimulus there. And so being able to provide that as an opportunity to be able to say, here's a low threshold environment for you to be able to say, I am here listening to you. It's, it's extremely important. And that's what people really needed, someone to be able to listen to them. And, and also even for us as clinicians, right? Um, in order for us to be able to reach the conclusions that we need to reach as professionals, we need to get all the information necessary. And it's really tough when it's hard for the patient to communicate with you. And so I think, although you lose that aspect of that, like, in person, in your face energy, you can actually replace it with the fact that the person's looking you right in the eyes and you're able to ask them the questions that you need to ask. Yeah, no, completely. I think that, and as like, um, as we get more and more used to, um, like, you know, video chatting with each other, so on and so forth, it'll get a little bit easier for us, I think. But I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no substitute for in person, whatever, but I do think that 
it's still better than, you know, just picking up the phone phone or whatever, or like writing an email back and forth. Right. And like you mentioned, it's just, it's a more intimate setting, right? You're not worried about, you're not, what, what I never understood about healthcare, this is kind of going on a little tangent, you know, like I call it like the cone of silence because it's so ridiculous. You know, when you're like checking in at a, at any clinic, there's like a sign, Oh, please step behind here to protect patients privacy while they're like yelling out your name telling you telling everyone in the like you're here for this this and this you know this is what your copay is this is what this is literally everyone can hear it right like it's not because you're like just five feet away in this air right it's you're not in a box or anything it's like it's stupid right and it's just like we start our we start our interactions in healthcare in such a it's almost like dehumanizing for for everyone that walks into healthcare there's no there's no part of healthcare that's actually humanizing or helping you and i think that's part of the reason why people don't really necessarily get better or they don't want to see us outside of like, obviously the costs and all that stuff. But you know, if you have something, what you think is embarrassing or like, you know, people don't want to admit that something's wrong with them and you're going to a clinic and now it's being put on blast. It's just like, why? Like, but like with telemedicine or whatever, it's just like, you know, no one needs to know the check-in process is in whatever. That's also an intimate process. And, and I think that's one reason why I think the hybrid care is going to be the one thing in the end, I think will eventually win out because you kind of need both. But I hope that we can take some of the learnings that we get from telemedicine and implement them into our in-person visits because that intimacy that we think we are having uh, in person is not really as intimate as we think it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's going to be a lot of, I mean, I think what's going to be really cool with the next, we'll say five to 10 years is the improvement of efficiency. Um, I think that there's a lot of inefficiencies in how healthcare establishments operate. And that actually will make things very expensive, uh, not just from a financial standpoint, but also from a time standpoint, because you're going to have just one step, the next step. I was actually looking at an industry report and they were saying, okay, this is a current life cycle of a specific, uh, of, of like the average patient. And there's 15 different steps that this patient has to go through. And every single step, just like any piece of equipment, the more extensive and uh, complex that piece of equipment is, the more opportunities that equipment has, the more opportunities that equipment can fail. Um, and so being able to make it efficient and streamlined uh, is going to be a- extremely important. Now, obviously, I think that there's a huge place for specialists. I think there's an absolutely huge place for specialists, but we have to start looking at how can we simplify things versus overcomplicate things because overcomplication doesn't necessarily equate to better outcomes it doesn't lead to better experiences yeah maybe it was initially designed to make things a little bit easier but we may have realized that things have gotten more challenging with the more steps that we have done and so that is a that was just a very interesting observation i think 100 percent. i mean i think medicine loves to complicate overcomplicate everything i mean it's kind of like a car right like a race cars versus like just a standard bike and you know like yes the race car might get there faster but once it breaks or a lot of things can break on it you need to have really specialized equipment, really specialized knowledge, whatever. But if a chain falls off your thing, you know, we fall it, turn the bike upside down, did that thing. I mean, like, it doesn't take, you know, so it's just like the same thing. But like, yeah, medicine for, we just love to overcomplicate everything. And it gets to the point where we get confused. And so, like, that's the thing that I t- try to tell people is like, if it's hard for us to navigate the system or navigate through our processes, what the, the patient has, like, no chance, like, at all to do any of it. So like, we need to like, like you said, we need to step back, really streamline everything, take out all the, 
you know, cut the fat for lack of a better term. I can't think of anything better, but, uh, yeah, no, completely. But, um, so you also have something interesting that you're working on. Uh, you're building an AI platform, uh, for, I will, I'll let you explain it. What exactly you're building. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about this. And so, uh, this has been a, a 10 year project as in, this was an idea that I had 10 years ago, but I had no idea how to implement it. And I just started building it, uh, about two years ago and being able to use artificial intelligence as a way to actually aid in the clinical decision-making process. So right now with the rise of chat GPT, huge, 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 huge developments over the past, let's say six to eight months in regards to generative AI and what it can use. And I think um, one of the big things is being able to see how can we use AI as a way to reduce the administrative cost, which I think is awesome. I think it's fantastic because the administrative cost in hours makes it very, very challenging for us clinicians to do our jobs, which is actually working in the clinic. But I, I thought, why not take it a step further? Why not use AI to take our clinical decision-making process and put it into a platform which allows the patients to interact with it to receive like a level of care that is comparable to what we're providing. And the way I saw it was the fact that we're all scientists and as scientists, we have to collect the necessary information to reach some sort of specific decision. And there are way more sick people than there are people who can take care of them. And I went into the AI, uh, AI space and built this, it's called the sciatica protocol. And what it was designed to do is to help patients uh, manage their sciatica pain with exercises and stretches, um, all customized. Um, and it's delivered to them through text message. One, to be able to provide people an opportunity for a couple of different things. Number one, if you don't have insurance, or number two, if your insurance is not covering the high cost that you need to see for a physical therapist. And so what this does is to drive the cost down because the way to operate this or the cost to operate this is a lot less. So instead of having to pay two to $300 a session to even just see a physical therapist a couple of times a week, it's only a $10 a week program where you're actually interacting with this program that gives you customized exercises on a daily basis and reminds you, and it'll also change based on how you're feeling for that day. And the way I see it, there's a huge space for our AI in this space to be able to reduce costs because again, it takes a lot of time and energy and actually even takes a human to be able to stand behind and help someone. Um, but number two, it improves access because it's an opportunity to scale clinical decision-making at a larger scale without having to hire and train more clinicians. And then number three, instead of having to wait for long periods of time to even book an appointment with a clinician, you can actually start this program right away. And so what this allows us to do is allows us to be, allows patients or people experiencing this to start treating their sciatica pain pretty quickly. But also in addition to that, from a clinician standpoint, it's going to be addressing the problems that you could have fixed in your sleep and what that actually allows you to do it frees up the time so you can open up your mind to be able to work on those harder patients and so it allows us to really help out more people without spending any extra money without increasing the amount of work that we have to do um, because of the fact that this ai 
AI can be used to help out addressing some of those problems that we could have always done, but would occupy the time and space that a, a more complicated person would really need. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. I think that's a great use of AI. Um, and so like, so for your specific tool, <clears throat> is it something that you've loaded kind of the clinical decision-making in the back end? And then, you know, as they, it's kind of like a decision tree almost, right? Like you know, yes, no, then they go down here and it's basically taking what you would be doing and just kind of putting it on paper. Um, how long did that process take to kind of create that decision tree process? Cause I mean, there's a lot of inputs that you kind of have to deal with. Yeah, there are a ton of inputs. Um, I would say I would say it took about six months. Um, the, and the reason being was that trying to put this decision tree on paper together uh, was hard for myself. Like when it comes to operations, this was something that I wasn't very good at operating. So I would like work on one decision tree and then like walk away and get distracted. Um, but realizing as I was mapping this out, I was really amazed by one, how I operate it, but also number two, how it can actually be applied. Um, I think decision trees, clinical decision-making, that's what school taught us. So ultimately school taught us to make sure that we passed our boards, right? Our board exams ensured that we didn't kill our patients, right? But that's, that's the only thing, right? As we take our continuing education and as we, um, the clinical decision-making, not only is it, okay, pick the best option out of the worst options that are available to us, but okay, based on the new information that we received, we can then say, all right, these are the new interventions that we're gonna be implementing. And so it gives us an opportunity to, to kind of see things in real time. And every, every, for the most part, every clinician has a decision-making process. We, um, and, and what's interesting is that we have, we developed that decision-making process over years and years and years and years and years of seeing patients. But the moment that you retire from clinic, your decision-making process is gone. Like no one else is using it. Right. And so what ends up happening is that it then ends up being, um, and your decision-making process is going to be different than the other decision-making process of the clinician right next to you because of your own thoughts, biases, and decisions. You might be presented with the same information, but you're also uh, presented with various different patients as well. And they'll present with various different outcomes and data. And so how can we create in a way uh, a standard? And actually, in addition to that, I think what's going to be particularly useful is that as we, and not even necessary standardization of care, but using AI, it gives us an opportunity to collect massive, massive amounts of data in a short period of time that would have required so much more money, time, and people to actually compile this data to come up with some sort of clinical guideline. So it actually is going to accelerate even our ability to collect data and use that data to improve all these decision-making trees as well. So. Um, I kind of went off on a tangent right there, but it gives us an opportunity to say, okay, we have this decision tree and one, it saves us a lot of energy, but also number two, it's going to accelerate how we can improve those decision trees as well. Because an example, like it, it might take a thousand patients for you to see, to finally realize that this specific, this specific intervention isn't working. And instead of a thousand hours, you can compile that, uh, in a much shorter time frame with the, the use of AI and the collection of data. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think for me, and this might rub people wrong a little bit, but for me, it's not the diagnosis part that makes a clinician special. Like, I feel like, you know, because that's very like black and white almost, right? Like if this person has this, 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 and it's very rare where you have like people like kind of like Dr. House, right? Like I think all medical people watch that show. I mean, that's kind of like really like that's like 0.01% people that are like that amazing at diagnosis from like very little things. But I think what, what makes a clinician great is after the diagnosis is what you do once you get that diagnosis. Cause then, then it's kind of like, yes, there are established things, but there's, there's like a bunch of different things you can try or do. And that based on what the patient can handle or cannot handle. And <clears throat> so like, I don't understand why medicine, I understand in the sense of, okay, when we're making a decision tree, it has to be pretty robust. We need to make sure we need to have like parachutes in there. So if this person says, answers this question a certain way, they need to stop. Like we can't let them move forward be like, Hey, you need to call a doctor or whoever call this number. I hundred percent agree with that. And for sure, you know, and that's some, it's an iterative, iterative process, just like you said with us, right. As we're growing and maturing and stuff like our decision-making gets better, hopefully it's better. Uh, and same thing with the, with these models. Right. Um, but it's when we figure out what they have is when our job honestly really starts. Uh, and that part, that part, like AI can take, that's what I, that, the reason why I'm saying this is because AI is starting to take over the decision, treat, the decision-making part, like a hey, diagnosing part, like, Hey, this person's got this. I mean, they can ingest a bunch of labs, all these scans, all these things. It's going to come to a point where it's just going to be one hub and it's going to be like, Oh, you have this, you have this, you have this. Go see this doctor, go see this doctor, go see this doctor. You're supposed to go see this person. But like AI is going to have a really hard time with the part after that. And that's the part that we really need to be And to your point, right? The, uh, the, the decision-making part is important. It's a vital part of medicine, but it takes a lot of time and energy, right? But if you can get somebody, get, get them diagnosed much quicker, like while you're sleeping, right? At midnight labs are coming in and, the, and all that's going on. Then in the morning, now you're not worried about, okay, what does this patient have? Okay, this patient's got this. Now we got to move on to this. And you can schedule them faster. You can get them better faster. Like everything can just happen more efficiently. And like you said, you have more time to work on the more complex issues. The people that did fall through the algorithm and had to call you because, hey, it's the, we, we are not going to just keep them moving. Like you get to, you, then you get to really like, flex your muscles on the diagnosis part if you really want to on those patients. Yeah, and I think what a, um, there's, been a, there's been a space or a group where they're thinking, man, this is going to take away our jobs. And I think the truth is, is that it's not going to take away jobs as long as people are willing to understand the use of it. It's like that, that's, that's the most important part. And in medicine, there's always going to be way more people who are sick than the folks who can actually take care of them. And so it's not taking anything away. It's actually providing an opportunity for people who can need it, but not access it. And I think that is, that is going to be a huge part. And ultimately, I mean, if we look at the, and you know, I don't want to take up much more of your time, but um, a large part of it is, is the fact that healthcare costs are rising and it ends up being extremely expensive. And that money has to come from somewhere. It comes from, people's paychecks and everything. And what I think what the use of AI is going to be particularly helpful is the fact that instead of having to say, pay, and this just says, you know, uh, 300 grand for a clinician to be able to solve it, um, that 300 grand has to come from somewhere. So it take it, for, it, it could be taken from insurance premiums. But the thing is the fact that 
yeah, so as the insurance premium starts to pay paying out these clinicians, there's going to be a lot less money. So what ends up happening? The cost gets pushed onto the patient. So that means that higher insurance premiums, higher costs of care. The cool thing about the use of AI is that it can keep the cost pretty low because the use of this program or these programs, this platform, will be significantly less. What that means is that there's going to be a lot more money which can be used to be allotted towards clinicians. And instead of squeezing everyone dry from all ends of the standpoint, AI has an opportunity to reduce costs, which then allows us to have a bigger pool of money, which, you know, it's unfortunate that everything has to be driven by money, but it's the reality of things. And so if you can save money so you can spend it on something else, that's a, that's, you know, and while people are improving, it's a win-win. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Hopefully, hopefully people look at it that way more so than the other way. I think that if you're afraid of losing your job to AI, you need to realize you, you need to first understand why you're afraid of it, right? If you're just if you're just if you're doing a I, should, I don't even want to use I was gonna say if you're doing a job that can be replaced with AI, then now is your time to kind of upskill yourself and move on, like you know, to take on more tasks, do more things, do all these other things. Because the fact of the matter is, it's coming. It's not that you by you not liking it or not reading about it or not understanding it, it doesn't. <laughs> doesn't make it from not happening right it's happening it's happening at a rapid pace a lot faster than even the people that are that created the models are like whoa this is happening really quickly and so i think i'm i'm on your camp like i think that especially well we're both like in medicine right <clears throat> ai is not going to replace clinicians it just can't it's not at that point uh maybe when we get older we're listening to this conversation right and we're like oh crap like we got screwed right but you know like i said it's the medicine is always going to be a human to human thing, right? Like you can diagnose people, you might even tell them what the right medication is and all that stuff. But the support part of it, it's going to be really hard for AI to take care of because it doesn't have empathy right now. It's not sentient. It can't. And humans, if anyone's ever talked to a patient thinking that it was going to be a normal, not like a standard interaction has never really talked to a patient because as you're talking to a patient and they get more and more comfortable, things just kind of start flying. You're like, Whoa, I don't know what to do with this. And, but you just have to kind of roll with it and just kind of deal with it. And I think that that's what makes uh, clinicians special. That's what makes people like you special is just that the ability to um, not only just do your job that you trained yourself to do during school, all this stuff, but also be there as a human being for that other human being and be like, Hey, you're going to be okay. We're going to make you better. And this is how we're going to make you better. Yes. It, there might be a time where, well, the only thing you know is the AI sends them an email and sends you an email and be like, Hey, Zan's coming to you for sciatic nerve pain. And he, these are, these, this is his questionnaire. This is all he's done. And then you see him, but I will, I'll challenge people. Isn't that already how we see people? Isn't that, you know, when you go to a specialist, that's really all you know about them, right? Like there's a questionnaire that's sent to you or like you're reading a note. And then you're just you're just giving a diagnosis. I don't see what the huge difference is between what you're talking about and kind of what we do right now. It's just it's just different. It's just a different way of arriving to the same conclusion. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's it's just different, and it gives us an opportunity to uh, to evolve, right? It gives us an opportunity to evolve and push the push forward, um, which we got into this industry to help people. And so what that means is whatever, whatever is available to help folks, we should be, I, I'm, I mean, I'm on board. So 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Give, it gives us, it's a, it's a, we live in a cool time. We live yeah. in a cool time. I'm, I'm excited to a point where um, I think it might've been, I mean, Star Trek, Star Wars, you know, some, someone comes in with the element, they're on the table and all set in like a 3d screen. And then, you know, they have the computer talent. That'll be really cool. Um, I mean, that's going to be a, a long ways from now, but yeah, you're right. Like we, uh healthcare healthcare is uh is a science but it's also an art right and so uh and i think that recently um ai generated images are now working off of ai generated images and apparently it's been uh, it's been very very interesting in the the art world itself yeah no for sure but um yeah let i just want to and thank you for your time man i know we're a little bit over time but um i want to end this conversation with just one last question you know You've come a long way. You've done a lot of amazing things, but uh, you know what advice would you have given yourself, you know, to that high school kid that was walking into the to the guidance counselor? What advice would you have given yourself back then? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> this is a really interesting. So I ask myself this a lot, and it always goes to the the same answer. Where Back when I was in high school, a lot of the things that I did in high school was driven uh, by, by fear, um, but it was just fear of getting in trouble. And not to say that I was like raised like in fear, I wasn't, but there was just something where I was just so, so afraid to take risks. And I was very, very comfortable of just doing the, the same things. And so um, I would say, it's not necessarily get in trouble, but things that excite you, pursue them. Because what's the worst that could happen? That's the, that's the big thing. Um, that's what I would tell you. It's like things that get you excited, pursue them, and what's the worst that could happen? I love that advice. Um, that's probably the same advice I would tell myself as well. But uh, yeah, for those who want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, you can reach out to me um, at my email, which is uh, info at ifixyoursciatica.com. I look at every email, I respond to every email and would happy would be happy to uh, answer any questions or talk a little bit more if you're interested. Awesome. Well, Ashley, thank you so much. Uh, just talking to you is inspiring. Um, yeah, keep up the amazing work and um, yeah, I look forward to following your journey. Thank you so much, Zane.